Thank you for joining Crossroads Community Church today. We're so excited about what God's doing in the lives of the people of our church and the lives of those who are listening online. If you have any questions or want more information about our church, visit our website at www.crossroadsccl.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Now let's jump into the Word with this week's message. Well, how many of you are on our prayer chain or prayer team receive the emails in regard to that? Can I see a show of hands? Okay. Uh, last night, what well, was yesterday evening, uh, Brenda's dad, my father-in-law, of course, he was fishing. He was up in uh, the UP. And so he's going up some stairs up on a hill after fishing and uh, basically fell. And he fell and then he hit his head and so knocked unconscious and uh, uh, cracked his skull. So they didn't know that at first. So they took him to, uh, my mother-in-law took him to um, an emergency room in Ishpeming, and they said it's more serious, there's some bleeding. So took him to a hospital in Marquette, and uh, then they said, well, they need to do surgery that night with the neurosurgeon. So he was in ICU. So we have people praying, and then we put it out on our prayer chain. So you go to our uh, Crossroads website, crossroadcco.com, and there's a tab where you can say, I've got a prayer request. So I hit that, put in the request, send it out. And so midnight, uh, Brenda received a call. I was sound asleep, uh, but she received a call. Uh, the neurosurgeon came in and says he did not need surgery. So we are thankful for that. So uh, we think that it could be. We don't know exactly what happened, but we thank you for praying. And so continue to pray. But uh, from going to the place of we need to do surgery tonight to now he doesn't need surgery, I think is a pretty significant change. So I'll find out more today. But the Lord answers prayer. So thank you for praying. So we're on a series now called Sent. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. <clears throat> We're going to hang out there, so let's pray. Lord, you're an awesome God, and as Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And so, Lord, we are a sent people. We are here because others were sent to pass on an obedient relationship with Christ to us. And so, Lord, continue to send us to continue, Lord, to lead us uh, to be a sent people, to be on mission. And so, God, we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we go into your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, imagine a world, a weird, a strange world, that before you're admitted to a hospital, you have to have a clean bill of health. Imagine a world where a doctor won't see you if you're sick because he's afraid of contracting your illness. Imagine a place where, the, where you can only get glasses if you have perfect vision. You can only get dental care if you have a perfect smile. You can only see a counselor or a therapist unless you're happy and emotionally well-adjusted. A place where teachers only teach those who are knowledgeable and wise, where restaurants refuse to serve the hungry, where the thirsty are denied water, and where those who are lonely are kept in isolation until they can make friends. What kind of world am I talking about? Is it something out of the twilight zone or something spun into one of the crazy novels of Stephen King? No, it's kind of the religious world that Jesus was in. It was a world where those who needed hope, where those who were far from God, were kept at a distance. 
and that until they got their lives together, until they kind of perfected themselves, that the religious people were taught to stay far away from them. It's the world that Jesus walked in. It was the world of the religious culture. And unfortunately, too often, it's the world of the church. It's the world that you and I are a part of when we see people who are far from God, who have beliefs, languages, values, and behaviors that are so different than us. We are told, avoid those people. Stay away from them. You don't want to be near to them. But as we're on our second message of our series, Sent, I want to talk about this mindset that keeps us away from mission. A mindset that was prevalent in the first century, but it also impacts us today. And in discovering that mindset, I want us to understand that we're not as far away from doing mission as we think we are. And one of my great fears and one of the things I I hate about a message series like this is that I know if there's a real opportunity for me to make you feel guilty, for me to make you feel kind of less than you felt before you came in, it's this kind of a series. When I talk about mission, when I talk about sharing your faith, and many of us would say, I feel so inadequate I feel like I'm failing at this. I don't know what to do. I don't feel good enough. I don't feel equipped. And I want to say that toward that end, and Nancy referred to this, on September 1st, we're starting a 30-day kickstart into the harvest. And one of the things we're going to provide for you is a 30-day devotional prayer guide. It's a day-by-day guide, five days a week for four weeks about connecting with God, his heart for people who are in the harvest field, those who need to know Jesus, scriptures, ways you can pray, next steps that you can take. We're also going to be engaging in, in, in activities with our outposts that are developing. So I want to say a little bit more about how you can connect with that at the end, because we want to give you something very practical. So having said that, Matthew chapter 9 Matthew chapter 9 in your Bibles, turn there in your Bible app, you version, whatever. If you don't have either, we'll have it by way of the screen, the scriptures. And if you're in a note writing mood, let me give you the first thing I want us to see. That is Jesus recruits. Jesus recruits. Verse 9, chapter 9, Matthew, it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. What is remarkable about this is the man who was invited. He was a tax collector. Now, if I give you the idea, or if I say the IRS, what comes to your mind? Probably not a lot of warm and fuzzy feelings, are there? Especially if you get an audit. We're not fans of the IRS. We're not fans of taxes. We're not fans of that kind of stuff. But when you think of tax collecting and the collection in the first century, it goes into a whole nother realm of negativity and darkness. To think of the tax collector in the first century, think of the businessman, the high-powered executive embezzling funds. Mix it with the audacity of an ambulance-chasing lawyer, and then throw in there the mix of the code of ethics of a drug pusher, and you have a tax collector of the first century. 
They were not highly thought of. They were not at all valued. They were not all appreciated. And let me tell you why. Because Israel was a province under the Roman Empire. They were occupied by this very powerful pagan foreign Gentile rulers. The Roman Empire would look at their provinces like in Israel when Jesus was walking They'd say, we need money from them, and we need to control them, and we need to keep them under tow. And so they would find men who would be tax collectors, men who were of the culture, of the language, knew the ways of the people, but were willing to betray the people and take money for Rome. And so the Roman government might say to the tax collector, we need you to collect $10,000 a week. That goes to us. Anything that you collect above that, that's yours. Make as much money as you want. And it's what we would call legalized, government-backed extortion. To think about Matthew, to get into his mindset, to be a tax collector, you had to be a person who simply didn't care. You're going to betray your community and your reputation would be damaged. Matthew knew he would do that. But Matthew in his mind, he would say, I don't care. You'd have to break the heart of your mother and your father. They would be so disappointed with you. And in fact, Matthew's more formal name in Mark and Luke is Levi. And Levi is the name you would give to a child that you would hope that would enter into the priesthood, into the ministry. And they had hopes, high hopes, that he would go into the priesthood, into the ministry. But instead he goes the exact opposite way. He becomes a tax collector. He breaks his mom and dad's heart. And Matthew says... I don't care. To be a tax collector meant that you were going to be unclean. You couldn't enter the temple. You couldn't be religious. You could never be right with God. You were separated from God. You were separated from the community. And to that, Matthew said, for the sake of money and the power and the influence and the leverage that I'm going to get over people, I don't care. And as he sat there at the tax booth collecting all of the coins, all of the money, through his career, no doubt he would hear people come up to him and say, your mom must be really proud of you. Look what you've made of your life. How do you feel betraying your people like this? How do you feel in your conscience about being a greedy cheat? You must love poor people because that's what you've made a lot of us. And all of the disdain and all of the looks of condescension and all of the judgment. And now Jesus walks up to his booth and he says two words. Two words that will change Matthew's life forever and it will change our lives because right now we're reading the book that he penned. Jesus came up to him and he said, Matthew, follow me. Right there in the midst of his practice of extortion, right there in the midst of his mindset of rebellion, right there in the midst of all of his ugliness, Jesus comes up and says to him, follow me. And folks, I have to be honest, as I thought about that this week, my mind was blown away. 
Why did Jesus do that? I don't know. I think about my own life, my own brokenness, and my own sin. And the times when other Christians would judge me, Jesus came up to me and he said, Anthony, follow me. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you're here because you need to hear the words that Jesus didn't make a mistake when he came to your life, and you are broken, you are defeated. And maybe in the wake of decisions you've made, you've had relationships that have been shattered. Maybe your own heart has been wounded and has been torn apart, and maybe Jesus came up to you and he said, follow me, even though you don't have it together. And now in the process of following him, it's made a difference, but there's still a lot that's not been pieced together. And folks, this is big, isn't it? Let's really wrap our minds around this. Because I'm thinking, you know what, if you're in today's church culture, if you're in today's religious culture, you might go up to Matthew. If you're a spiritual leader and you might say, Matthew, Man, you need to repent. You need to clean up your life, man. You need to get it together. Or maybe you're a little bit more merciful. And maybe you think a better thing to do is say, you know, Matthew, we've got a four-year program you can be a part of. And you can go into this program and learn a lot of things and, and kind of get your life together. Then maybe maybe we can do something with you. Maybe after those four years. But Jesus doesn't do that. He just comes up to him. Two words, follow me. And what I see here is that Jesus does not give a religious call. He gives a relationship call. See, a religious call is this. It says... Get your life together, and then you can join us. Believe all of these things, and then you can be a part. Meet all of these requirements, and then we'll accept you. And that's what religion has, has done throughout the centuries. But Jesus doesn't do that. He gives a relational call. He comes to him in the midst of his brokenness, and he says, follow me. And Matthew gets up and he follows him and he just enters into a relationship with Jesus and Jesus is going to clean him up and shape his life in the process. And I think it says something very important about mission and an obstacle that, that we have to overcome. And the big obstacle is this, is that oftentimes before people believe, they need to belong. Before they believe what we need, before they believe what we believe, they need to belong to who we are. And so you're out in your outpost, Algonac, Marine City, Richmond, St. Clair, wherever it may be, and you're serving and you're on mission and people are connecting to this and you see somebody who's far from God, but they are learning to love you and they're learning to love what we do. And they say to us, can I be a part of this? Can I join you? Can I help with the plan? Can I be, and they don't know Jesus and we're going to be like Jesus and we're going to say, yeah, absolutely. Come belong to us. And then as they belong, as they connect with us, then they connect to the God whom we believe who has called us out into mission. Do you know that there's people who before they belong to Jesus, they need to belong to you? There's people that you need to kind of tolerate, you need to put up with, you need to love. 
You need to do what is right despite how you feel and despite what they deserve. Because before they believe, they need to belong. It is a relationship and not a religion. At least the second thing. Number two, Jesus reaches out. Jesus reaches out. Verse 10, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Goodness gracious, that wasn't bad enough that Jesus called Matthew. And now Jesus is going into a party with a whole group of them. Verse 11, and when the Pharisees, the religious people, the elite saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This doesn't make sense. He was taking a lot of people off. Let me give you three answers to that question as to why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, the worst of the worst. Number one, and we talked about this last week, he did it just because he loved them. Jesus loved the outcast and he loved the rejected because that's who he came to save. That's who he went on to the cross for because all of us are outcast and rejected because none of us lives up to the standards of the holiness of God. And number two, he did it to humble the rest of the disciples. You've got Peter, you've got John, you've got James. And these are guys who are good Jewish boys who grew up into good Jewish homes and they did the right thing and they had their own businesses and they were fairly successful. And who does he bring onto the team? He brings in somebody who is a rebellion, Rebellion. He brings in somebody who is an outcast, and he brings in somebody who collects taxes. Folks, do you realize that business and taxes, they don't always go well together? They don't make the best teammates sometimes. And you know, Peter, James, and John, they would have thought, Jesus chose us because we're so good. Jesus chose us because we've got so much together. But when Matthew comes onto the team, they've got to realize, you know what? Maybe we're not chosen based off of our goodness, but maybe we're chosen based off of the calling and the grace of God. I remember when I was 15, as a sophomore, I was going through some times of rebellion and attitude problems and behavior issues. Mom and dad, they they couldn't really get to the heart of what I was going through, so they tried to change my environment. And so what did they do? They sent me to a Christian school, Christian Academy of Louisville. There I was, 15. My world at that time on start, it was Sunday morning, it was Star Trek, not church. My culture and the lyrics that were roaming through my head was more Motley Crue and Van Halen and ACDC, not John and the Gospels of whatever. I had a longer hair. I dressed differently. My clothes were darker, all that kind of stuff. And when they sent me to that school, it was almost as I thought of it at the time, it was kind of like sending Alice Cooper to Harvard. I wasn't exactly a great fit. And I remember the kids, some of the kids looking at me and they were saying, dude, you need to go home and read your Bible. And I would go home and read, try to read the Bible because maybe that was a good thing to do. And it just didn't make sense. 
And here is Matthew being brought in to kind of this church group, these traditional kids. And, and so Jesus is wanting them to be humbled, and he's wanting to bring somebody on the team that they're going to learn to work with so that they can better work with those who are in the world who are different than them. There's a third reason. Is that Jesus did this because he was teaching his disciples about how to do mission. I think the guys would have been looking at Jesus, Peter and John and James and all the rest of them. They're thinking, how does Jesus, a guy who is so sinless, who is so perfect, who is so flawless, laugh and relate and interact and is so comfortable with those who live the exact opposite of what he does and have the exact opposite beliefs and values. And the reason Jesus did that is because he is teaching his disciples how to be on mission because Christianity will go from a group of just a few hundred and in 300 years it will impact several million people and overturn the Roman Empire. And it's not because they had this great strategy, or they have these wonderful outreach programs, it's because Jesus taught his disciples, who taught his disciples, who taught their disciples, how to be on mission. And how we are on mission is when we have friendships and belong to people who are far from God. And they start to connect with Jesus Christ. How many of you, when you think about who's influenced your life, what has influenced your life the most when it comes to a relationship with Christ, how many of you would primarily say it's a church program or some big crusade or some big event, though maybe that had a pivotal effect at one time? Or how many of you would say, for me, the most influential thing is a friendship, a relative, a loved one? who just came alongside of my life and started to love me and to disciple me. Probably the biggest survey that's ever been done about what's influenced people to come to Jesus was a survey done a few years ago where 14,000 Christians were asked, what was it that influenced your life the most in coming to Jesus? And there were eight responses that were given, and I want to show them by way of the screen if we can have those. And of the eight responses, let's look where the biggest percentage of influence was. Of those 14,000, one to two percent said there was a special need. Two to three percent said coming to church. Five to six percent said a pastor. One to two percent said a visitation program. Four to five percent said a Sunday school Half to 1% said an evangelistic crusade. 2 to 3% said a church program. But 75 to 90% said it was a friend or a relative. This is what Jesus is modeling. Becoming a friend of those who are far from God. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my dad. I visit with him every couple of months. And second, oh, we have dinner together. We catch up. As we were talking... My dad does most of the talking. And, uh, and about 80% of what he talks about is his relationship with Christ and what God is doing in his life. 
And that is so cool, so cool to, to listen, even though it does require a little bit of patience on my part. Give my dad a couple of cups of coffee, and he can go on and on and on. But he's talking about Jesus, and that's cool. And I can remember when I was growing up, I came to faith in Christ at 16. Dad saw the change in my life, and I shared with him about Jesus. And he was good with what God was doing in my life, but then I shared with him about Oh, he needed to come to Jesus. He needed to embrace the gospel. My dad's response would be something like this. Son, I've got to live in the real world. I'm not into that kind of stuff. I don't need that, those myths, those fairy tales. I'm glad that's helpful for you, but I've got to live into the real world where things are hard and difficult and tough decisions are got to be made. I can't live in that world. So I did everything I could to try to impress my dad, to bring him to things that would really just impress him, influence him to come to Jesus. One time I took him to see this group called the Power Team, the 1980s. Everyone remember to see those guys? These hulking guys who do these incredible feats of strength and power. They came into Freedom Hall in Louisville. I took dad to see them. It was an impressive, and they shared about Jesus, and I think they had a good ministry But that didn't win my dad over. Then I took him to one of the mega churches in Louisville, huge mega church, Southeast Christian Church. Incredible ministries, incredible music, incredible speakers, all of this going on, and that didn't influence my dad to come to Christ. And then I took my dad to Promise Keepers, 1994, when they came to Indianapolis 60,000 men. And it was a good experience, but that didn't influence my dad. I kind of gave up. I said, God, I'm just going to pray for him. And that's a good idea, isn't it? In my, my life, my witness for Jesus started to influence my dad when I got married and we had children. And when my dad saw the difference that Jesus makes in raising a family and going through the ins and outs and the struggles of of raising kids and and having a marriage, and dad saw the difference of that, that's when my dad became open to my faith. It was through that example. And then when his heart became open, when life could no longer make sense by all the resources of his own strength, He contacted me and I had the privilege of helping him to cross the line of faith to know Jesus. Folks, it's not hard. It's just loving people and living out our faith in everyday life, influencing them towards Christ. read a story of a couple weeks ago, or a couple days ago rather, of a powerful Christian leader and a pornographer, a guy who had this multi-million dollar business in the pornography industry, they had a public debate on a stage in some city. And so what was the nature of the debate? Well, the Christian leader was against pornography, obviously, and the pornographer was arguing that it's okay and it's not immoral and all that kind of stuff. And in my mind, that seems like a pretty ridiculous debate because it's obvious of the evils of pornography. But they had the debate, the discussion, and it went well, but after that, the, the Christian leader and the pornographer, they went out to eat. And they were together for a couple of hours. 
And they talked with each other about life, about sports, about politics. And the associate who was with the Christian leader was with them. And he was amazed that these two men were having this conversation with each other, even though they have completely different values and totally different lifestyles. And he couldn't understand how this great Christian leader could act like he was such a friend of this guy who was in the pornography industry. And so after it was all over, the associate of the Christian leader says, how could you relate so easily to him? How could it look like you guys have been friends for several years? And the Christian leader says, the reason is, is because that guy is going to come to a place in his life where life doesn't make sense. He's at a place of brokenness and he's going to need Jesus. And when he comes to that place, I want to have earned the right for him to call me because I want to lead him to a relationship with Christ. And so Jesus is here with all of them, the equivalents of the drug pushers, the pornographers, and everything else. And I have to think later on, as Jesus was in ministry, there was this guy who was up in a sycamore tree. His name was Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector who was just as corrupt as any of them. And he started to follow Jesus. And I wonder if Zacchaeus was at that party. And I wonder if Zacchaeus had seen Matthew, who was a tax collector, and so how he changed. And so the influence of one man changing led to another man changing, leading to another man changing. And that is how Christianity spreads. It is when one life comes into contact with another life and they love each other and they share life together and in that Jesus and the gospel rubs off. And it was through this principle that Christianity grew from a few hundred to several million in 300 years, even though they didn't have advertisement, even though they had all kinds of political pressures and persecutions against them, even though they didn't have all of the centralized publishing houses and organizing abilities that we do, they had life-on-life relationships. Well, what does that mean for us? Well, let's talk about how we take what we're learning on Sunday and transfer it to Monday. Let me give you a couple of encouragements. Number one, by way of your notes, I think as I look at Jesus here and what he's teaching, it tells me, first of all, to to love people for who they are, not where they are. Love people for who they are, not where they are. Verse 12 says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's, Not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Brenda and I like to buy deals. One of the ways that we get a deal is we look at a product and it says you can purchase this as is. And if a product is purchased as is, that means that there's something off, something irregular, something not quite right about it. There's like a flaw or the zipper doesn't fully zip or there's this hole or there's this seam that's crooked or something. It's still usable, but something is off. And when it comes to relationships and discipleship with people who are far from God, do you know how we need to love them? As is. Through the flaws, the irregularities, the problems. So that means that if they show us an image on their phone that is not very appropriate, How do we love them as is? 
We kind of look over that image and say, you know what, I'm not into that stuff, but we continue to talk to them and relate to them. They use language that is kind of harsh or out of bounds. How do we love them as is? And we look beyond that and we still carry on the conversation. They speak critically of our faith, of our Christian beliefs. How do we love them? We love them as is. And so we try to answer their questions. And if we don't know the answer, we try to seek the answers. They engage in a lifestyle that we disagree with, even strongly disagree with. How do we love them? We love them as is. And so we look beyond the lifestyle We find the common ground, and we engage them at the level of friendship. Number two, separate yourself from worldliness, but not the world. Separate yourself from worldliness, but not the world. Verse 13 says, but go and learn what this means. Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners you want to know what pleases the heart of God, what stokes him, what excites God, it's when we show mercy to people who are messy. And guys, it is easier just to add another Bible study to our agenda. It's easy to have another Christian fellowship. It is easy to go to another Christian concert. And that's not bad. In fact, I encourage much of that. But we don't have room to that place where we enter into a broken and fallen world and we offer mercy to those who are messy because it is so much more difficult to do. But it pleases and blesses the heart of God. Now, let me be careful with what I'm saying here. I think we can go to extremes on this with either end. When I'm talking about entering into a fallen world and loving those who are far from God and being at the places where we can connect with lost people, I'm not wanting to give you a license this morning to go to places where sin is kind of the dominant feature, okay? So don't go from here this morning and say, Pastor Anthony is saying, hey, it's okay if I go to a strip club because I'm going to people who are far from God, okay? No, I don't think that's a good place for you to go. You're not going to influence people. You will be influenced. I'm not saying go to the cannabis bar and hang out there or go to the beer drinking party where everybody's getting plastered. They're not going to be able to hear or understand what you're going to say. There's not going to be an intelligible conversation. And here's one of the things I know about us is that we overestimate our ability to handle temptation and we underestimate our ability to handle adversity. And so folks in this, don't overestimate your ability to handle temptation. Use wisdom, especially if you're a younger person or a younger Christian. But on the other side of the pendulum, we can be isolationist. We can just surround ourselves in this Christian world, in this Christian bubble, where we become so irrelevant as churches and as Christians, and we saturate ourselves with Christian music, Christian concerts, Christian radio, Christian streaming movies, Christian clubs and camps, Christian yellow pages, Christian singles networks, Christian softball leagues, on and on and on. I'm asking the question, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of that we're going to be infected by the world? 
I think the real issue is, is how are we infecting and how are we impacting the world? The church is not to be a recreational resort, but as I said last week, it is a support group for world changers. And we come and we gather and we're in the safety of our worship and our nurture and we build one another up and we do so to be on mission within the world. Well, I want to ask our worship team and our prayer team, our ministry prayer team to come forward. And as I shared with you toward the start of this message, beginning September 1st, we're going to be involved in a 30-day kickstart into the harvest field. And what that's going to involve is a, is a 30-day guide, which is a devotional, a prayer guide, which will help you to connect with God and His desire to be on mission and service within the world. We have a couple of our young people who are working on this. They're writing this and they're working with me on it, and I'm excited about this. We're also going to have activities and events with our outposts, and we'll talk more about that where you can connect. But if you want to connect more with that, you want to be more a part of that, Uh, you can simply go to crossroadcco.com. Right there at the top of the website or top of your phone, you'll see a big tab where you can say, get more information, and you can start to connect. So it's very easy to do that. So I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to read this closing story. There's a story about a lighthouse keeper who worked on a rocky stretch of coastline. Once a month, he would receive a new supply of oil, to keep the light burning so that the ships could safely sail near the rocky coast. And one night, though, a woman from a nearby village came and begged him for some oil to keep her family warm. And another time, a father asked for some to use to keep in his lamp. Then another man needed it to lubricate a wheel. And since all the requests seemed legitimate, the lighthouse keeper tried to please everyone and grant all the requests. And toward the end of the month, he noticed his supply of oil was dangerously low. Soon it was gone, and one night on the light, and one night the light on the lighthouse went out. And as a result, that evening several ships were wrecked, and countless lives were lost. And when the authorities investigated, the man was very apologetic. And he apologized, and he told them he was trying to be helpful with all of the oil that he had been given. And to their reply, and to his reply to their excuses was very simple. He said, you are given oil for one purpose, and for one purpose only, and that is to keep the light burning. And Jesus has given us his spirit, his call, his mission, and that is for one purpose, and that is to be on mission, to be sent, to pass on an obedient relationship with Christ to our community.